In this pod short, the Antiflix team interview director, producer and editor Sam Pope to talk about the latest cut of Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece, Apocalypse Now. The latest version, rather poignantly called Apocalypse Now Final Cut, was screened at a select number of cinemas in the UK, and Jeff and Sam were lucky enough to attend one of those screenings. These special five-hour showings of the movies included a post-credit Q&A session with Coppola himself. Jeff and Sam give us their thoughts on Final Cut and debate whether the extended version adds artistically to the original theatrical release or just compounds an already dense and complex cinematic experience. Over to Jeff and Sam for their thoughts, impressions and observations. Today, you're at the Flix team are here talking with filmmaker Sam Pope about his love and respect for the film Apocalypse Now. Welcome again to the show, Sam. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Sam, recently we watched the final cut of Apocalypse Now together, a mammoth five-hour exercise when you added that Q&A. Your love of this film goes back a long way. Do you remember when you first saw it? Yeah, I was, I was 17. I'd seen some poll on Film 4. I think it topped the list of one of the films to see before you die. I think it was like number one. I was like, right, okay. <laughs> I, better, I, better, I better get on and see it in that case. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Everything about it was just peculiar and odd. The opening, the whole sequence with Martin Sheen in that hotel room, the music, the sound design, the synthetic sort of helicopter sound that went around the the editing the voiceover was incredible everything everything was just amazing and it it just completely blew me away i've always returned to it because i think there's there's always films like that that you always return to yeah you know like the first time i saw the matrix that that blew me away that was incredible the first time i saw the dark knight the christopher nolan film with heath ledger but i remember the day i saw that in the cinema i remember coming out I remember seeing it again <laughs> and the same with Interstellar and films like that and when someone showed me LA Confidential for the first time oh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and there are so many films and you, you can return back to them so a bit like Lawrence of Arabia or On the Waterfront I absolutely love yeah. um, Groundhog Day and it, Apocalypse Night is just one of those it's on my top shelf and I always return back to it it's not a war film in the kind of traditional sense it's this psychedelic weird sort of trip in the jungle on a boat it's it's odd it's an odd odd film but it, it's wonderful obviously when i started watching it i just kind of assumed ignorance on my part obviously i just assumed it was going to be a straight war film yeah i just thought bridge over the river Kwai. you know it, it's going to be like that it's set in vietnam it's during the war it's got an amazing collection of actors in it and it just it, it was nothing like what i expected it was going to be and what's impressive is you didn't see it in the cinema. You saw no, it on TV no, no, no. Well, I, I'm far too young. I'm, you know, I'm, Thanks, in, I'm, in, I'm only in my early thirties, so I was, I was far too young. Obviously, when it came out uh, we like in you, the seventies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I, it's nothing I can do anything about. Unfortunately, <laughs> I was born too late. But I, it was, it was amazing to see it in the cinema, cleaned up on a massive screen, because for the first time you can really hear how dense the sound design is how amazing the music is with all the sequences you can hear and feel the rumbles because there is so many reasons why it's a groundbreaking film i mean i'm not an authority i'm just a massive fan but when i first saw it 
it stayed with me. And I'd always kind of try and steal little bits and pieces from it. So the montage sequence at the beginning, that stayed with me. So I found out who Walter Murch was. And after I found out who Walter Murch was, I started experimenting with editing. I started looking at what I could do myself as a 19-year-old with a camera out in Gloucester. It really kind of showed me that's what you can do with film. What's interesting, you say you're not an authority, but it was quite central to you when you were at college. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, it really changed my perspective on what film could look like, what it could be. I mean, Pulp Fiction was an example of that as well, because I didn't realise that you could have a film that a lot happens, but nothing really happens. (laughs) And it's in the wrong order. And it's just dialogue, but it's not dialogue for uh, just to drive things along. It's dialogue because dialogue needs to happen. Pulp Fiction, if we just go down that lane for a moment... Pulp Fiction looks at pulp novels of the 40s and 50s, takes those plot and inverts them. And they rely on that dialogue. Yeah, I guess what I, what I was trying to articulate was the fact that you're enjoying it, but it, it's not that thing where the dialogue is just simply there just to make things happen. You know, we're, we're talking about this certain thing because this thing's certain happen. It's just a normal conversation. Mm. It, it baffled me because I go, well, well, how is this compelling? How am I still hooked? Why do I keep coming back to this film? Why is it so bloody good when you watch it in the right order when you think about what actually happens you think well why is this compelling why, why am i yeah. why am i re-watching this film why do i re- want to revisit this again but I, I suppose with apocalypse i was kind of just blown away by the scale of it the ideas the themes in it the music the voiceover the 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 dialogue john yeah can, can i come back to that theme of dialogue and and something that's just intrigued me knowing Pulp Fiction, a lot of the dialogue, as you say, just delineates those characters. But it's the same as on the boat in Apocalypse Now. So they go in on this journey. Mm. These guys have these conversations that mean nothing in terms of plot, Mm. but yet define each character from Lance, from Chief. You know each one of them from the most inane things they say, but it works. Of course, and you know that Francis probably sat down with them as a, as a group and tried to sort of flesh out improvised pieces and stories because the guy who plays Chief, it's, it's Albert Hall, isn't it? Yes. The actor. He was from a theatre background. He was perfect for the role. Yeah. You can see how they kind of handpick them. Uh, and Lawrence Fishburne's, what, he's like 14, isn't he? He's not that old at all. <laughs> he, he, he looks so young. He looks so young. It almost doesn't seem to be Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, no. yeah. And he's perfect. This kind of naive kid from the Bronx who's just been dropped in Vietnam and he's kind of just sat there just trying to take it all in. And yeah. there's that, there's that fa- a fantastic line that Martin Sheen does where he says, you know, the, the light and air really put the zap on him. Uh, and it's, yeah. it's true. You know, and Chef, uh, yeah. Oh, Frederick Forrest. Yeah, he's fantastic. He's fantastic. Wrapped too tight for Vietnam, probably wrapped too tight for New Orleans. And yeah, it's just great characterizations and great dialogue. One of the big bugbears I've got is these films that go back to the 1940s and 50s and black people being treated as being equal when they weren't. You know, you had this huge racial divide that was going on then. Whereas by the time you got to Vietnam... Because it was a war nobody wanted to fight, they were sticking black people up on the front lines. And it comes through time and time again in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. And the thing that's fascinating about it is, 
And I guess it's why it's so poignant in the the French plantation scene when they're when they're burying uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character. Clean uh, Albert, he's crying. He's crying his eyes yeah. out. And there's there's so much kind of somber respect. You look at that performance and you, you understand where it's coming from, hundred percent. Because the thing that was so terrible about Vietnam and the, the draft and the way it happened is. They always ended up by having this disproportionate thing where working class guys would be sent out there because you'd have loads of different people who would try and dodge the draft in all kinds of different ways. You know, if they were, you know, college dropouts or if there weren't medical reasons why they couldn't, you know, or if they couldn't, you know, get away to Canada. Or have a spur. Or like a spur, yeah. Man. Bone spurs, yeah. Exactly. So, they, they, you know, they get sucked into this conflict. So you had a massively disproportionate amount of these uh, working class guys going out there. Black community as well. And there was also a disproportionate between the injuries that were suffered by the black community when they were out there, mm. these soldiers. They weren't treated well enough. Even when they were out in the field, that ignorance and that racism, it, it, it came with them out to Vietnam, they still had to experience it. But do you think part of the film plays this? In effect, Kilgore is John Wayne. You know, it's how John Wayne would have fought in a film like The Green Berets, for example. Yeah. You know, this guy was above everything. Yeah. And then you've got Chief, who's at the sharp end of this and ultimately pays the price for it by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You've got this dichotomy that's going on. It's no accident that the big action scene is run by white guys, but the real gritty dirt and the death is by the black guys. Yeah, I can I can see that. I can see that. And it's interesting because Robert Duvall, when he turned up on set, he brought Kilgore with him. Yeah. He'd, he'd already kind of found that character because apparently he was sort of, he was doing a version of what his, his father was like. On a side note, have you ever seen The Great Santini? No, 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 I haven't. No, no, no. So that is almost what would happen to Kilgore after the war. Mm. And it's a fantastic film. Duval is brilliant in it. And I would hardly recommend okay, I'll, uh, I'll, seeing it. What you mean more brilliant than he was? Oh, he's in, great in, in this, but the great Santini is just fantastic. And it's so underrated a film. Based on a novel by Pat Conroy, who based it on his father, who was military. It will haunt you, that film. And I, I just can't understand why it's so little known today. Right, let's go back to this. So... There have been many versions of Apocalypse Now. When it was released back in 79, the 70mm print that was shown in London had a different ending to the 35mm print that went out to the rest of the country. Now we've had the Redux version, and now we've got a final cut. What version do you prefer and why? It's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. I, I think the, the version that we saw a couple of weeks ago. The final cut. Yeah, the definitive. I must admit I do prefer it because the Redux was fantastic because you got to see some really amazing performances and stuff that would have never seen the light of day. Walter Murch obviously went back in. <laughs> I'm hoping not single-handedly. And he literally went back and opened up and looked at all of the stuff that, you know, they had to cut 15 minutes here and 10 minutes there and put loads of stuff back in. And suddenly there's, there's a whole side of it. There's all these different sections, these little bits and pieces that you go, wow, it's even more epic and more more dense and more textured and interesting than I, I even thought. And there's performances that I missed and you, you just kind of go, wow. But in parts, it did seem a little bit much. The French plantation scene, I, I always, 
I, I didn't quite know what to make of it because it, it never really seemed like it, it fitted. It just felt like it broke things up. But then the thing that I found out was that's the point where they were thinking about putting it in intermission because the film was so long at that point they thought, well, naturally we want to have sort of a break around that point. So I think that's where they were going to put the intermission, which kind of makes sense. But the interesting thing that John Melius and Francis Ford Coppola talk about is they talk about the fact that once they go past uh, the Dolong Bridge, you know, Francis goes, you know, when they go underneath the tail of the B-52 that's sunk in the, uh, sunk in the river, it's almost like they've gone through a gate or they've gone to a really strange, surreal place where it's they're going into the past, they're time traveling, they're encountering ghosts, and it gets really, really surreal and weird. And you can kind of see that in a little bit because John Mealis, when obviously he was talking about writing the script originally, the screenplay with George Lucas, he wanted to sort of have all these allegories in it and have it like uh, like Homer's Odyssey, where Kilgore is like the Cyclops, and they they have to trick him. They have to trick him with the surfer, Lance. They have to distract him so they can steal the surfboards. And obviously the, the Playboy bunnies are like the sirens. You know, you have those guys who are kind okay. of, That's you know, this, you know, I mean, they, they may be dead tomorrow. So, you know, why aren't they going to leap across the pit, push their way past the, the military police and get, and get on the, get on the stage. But they're like the sirens. You, you don't get there. And obviously you have all these guys who are clinging onto the bottom of the, the helicopter as it's flying up into the air. And with that in mind, you kind of go, okay, then. So, so what is the French plantation scene? And they're, they're ghosts. I guess the, the purpose of why they're there is to kind of remind the Americans, you go, well, it's history repeating itself. We had the same battles. We did the same things. We, we tried pacification. We tried... Um, Hearts know, and minds. Yeah, that we, we tried everything you guys are trying to do, even when they were trying to withdraw and they were trying to, I think probably someone in Nixon's administration said, we're, we're trying to do Vietnamese uh, occasion or something where we're trying to give Vietnam back to the, the, the Vietnamese. The French tried that. That seemed like a really important chunk of the film to have in because it gave you some political historical context. You, you kind of understood that the French knew it was pointless. The French knew they were wasting lives and bullets and money and young lives on this. And it was the biggest waste of time possible because they knew they were never going to win because tenacity and the, the mindset of the Vietnamese yeah. they were up against. I take all that you say and it's important historical perspective that you need to bring out the French were there and failed before the Americans. But in terms of filmmaking, I love the way you first saw them as ghosts, as you say, with the mist clears and they're there. It wraps up the whole situation with clean because you see them burying the body. You then go on this bizarre 15-minute meal bed encounter with Martin Sheen and this French woman, and it just stops the film. If there's one bit of the film I could remove, well two bits, but we'll go on and talk about Marlon Brando later. Um, <laughs> but if there's, you know, the main bit, I would take all that meal and that out because it just stops it. The, the Odyssey stops at that point. But you, even in Homer's Odyssey, you know, they, they, they had pauses. They had, they had, they had points where they had to, they had to stop. To me, it seemed like a natural pause. It does work. And in a sense, because they have Clean's funeral, you kind of have a bit of closure there and you it just makes more sense, I think. Because otherwise you have all these 
chunks and bits that are missing. That's the thing that kind of troubled me, I guess, about watching the Redux, because I went, well, there's all this amazing stuff that's cut out. It, it, this should be in. Because the only extra bits they've they've really put into this new version they've just released is... The surfboard? Yeah, the surfboards, <coughs> and obviously when they're sat, hid... <laughs> with a with a helicopter circling over above, that app is fantastic, and I'm I'm glad that's in. That, uh, I have no problem with that. The other section that I kind of wish was in was the scene later with Martin Sheen's character, and he's in the the shipping container, and Marlon Brando's reading the newspaper articles to him. You've got all these uh, Vietnamese kids looking through the little gaps. It, I thought it was lit, it was shot, and it was such a fantastic sequence, and I thought. It's such a shame that isn't in. But the thing that's kind of crazy about it is the fact that they could have put so much more in because all of the stuff with Brando, all the improvised stuff that he did, there's so much of it. Sam, we were in that cinema for five hours. Wasn't that enough? No, clearly not. <laughs> we should have had an intermission just after the French plantation scene. Oh, God. I saw this when it first came out. I saw it in 1980. I thought it flowed. You know, as you said, and you made a wonderful point, they go underneath the bomber. They go into another world. And it's almost like, I'm not saying this, it's not me, I wish it was, but it was somebody else said, you've gone into Skull Island. You're into something that's really dark, really bizarre. And it just didn't need the French sequence beforehand. I liked the fact that we got the closure with Clean and with him being buried. But I never thought about it. Because it just flowed so well when I originally saw it. Hmm. No, You're not I, convinced? I, no, no. Because I know it exists, I can't put it out of my mind. See, that, that's the problem. Whenever, whenever I see any director's cut of anything now, I can't, I can't watch the film again without knowing that there's another yes, bit absolutely. of reality that exists yes. somewhere else. So yeah. I, I can't not watch it because I'm now expecting... Yeah another scene to occur. That's the problem. That's an interesting but, point. I mean, the, the thing that's interesting is the mere fact they actually made the film, the mere fact that it's as digestible length anyway is a miracle in of itself. Because when they finished it, they had a million and a half feet of, yep. you know, exposed uh, film, a million and a half feet. And then Walter Murch claimed they had two million feet or something at the end of it. That's a hell of a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the 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 helicopter scene when they when they fly in with Kilgore. I mean that had like I've 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 found out how much it was in the end. That's how much of a geek I am. It's like one hundred and thirty thousand feet just just for the helicopter sequence, the attack. And that's an interesting point because you've got a film that took three years to make, mm. fired the original lead actor. Mm. The lead actor you have, Martin Sheen, has a heart attack. You didn't know where you're going to get helicopters in or not because they get get pulling off for manoeuvres in the Philippines. It was just mental. And, and Marlon Brando refused to turn up, even though they'd given him a million dollars. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm saving Marlon Brando for later. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. If anything, I would rather the French sequence than Marlon Brando. But <laughs> we'll come on to that. It is amazing it's turned out as well as it, as it has. And the fact that it's you know a classic is incredible. It's funny, really. I mean, we, we were talking about directors needing, uh, how, how did you put it, more... more um, needing a producer. Yeah, a producer. yeah needing yeah. a producer. Who's, who's kind of, who's more kind of controlling. And all Francis wanted to do, 
And this this is obviously in the early days when they when they were setting up American Zoetrope. He said to John Melius when they were first starting up, George Lucas and John Melius had been writing this thing, you know, what, 1960, 65, 66. So when, you know, they were sat out in the green at UCLA, they'd been planning to, to, to write something like this. And John Melius had always wanted to try and adapt Heart of Darkness. You know, because his his film tutor said it's it's impossible. You can't do it. It's unfilmable. It's on. You know, there's no way. And John Mealis went, "All right, okay, I'm going to give it a shot." That was the wrong person to say it. Well, exactly, exactly. Loads of people have tried it and failed. Or even Orson Welles couldn't do it, and he failed. Um, so that that really that really set that bug in him. So all they wanted to do at American Zoetrope was just make a ton of money. They wanted to make a big hit, a massive big hit, have a ton of money. And then all that Francis wanted to do was get on and start making the little tiny personal art house films they'd always wanted to do. Shame about one from the heart then, really, wasn't it? Because that screwed him more than anything else, mm. more than this. Mm. In trying to uh, get their independence, get a very large amount of money behind themselves and get their independence um, financially and get that kind of stamp of approval from the, the studio system so they could actually go out and make exactly what they wanted to, they had to become what they actually kind of disliked Despised, yeah. yeah in a sense yeah they they had had to become this 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 massive huge kind of blockbuster producing uh directors and writers so francis he does a uh, the godfather but but there's an interesting point because we talk about producers would the godfather have been the godfather without robert Edmonds? well exactly so the thing is francis has all these difficulties with the godfather you know, uh, absolutely hated making it. Mm. Uh, Godfather 2, he said, was easier, but still. And then obviously he goes on and does, you know, uh, the conversation. Now he's financially in a point where he can finally get on and start making the films that he wants to make. Great. Personal art house films. But no one wants to direct Apocalypse. No, because nobody in 75 wanted to make a Vietnam War film. Exactly, exactly. So John Melius nearly ended up by going to Vietnam. But he, I think he failed the draft because he was asthmatic. Have you ever heard that interview where he said he wanted to fly planes and then crash into the Vietnamese? He's just mental. Uh, I I love (laughs) Melius. And that's the reason I love Big Lebowski. Not for Lebowski, but the fact that John Goodman character is clearly John Melius. But the problem is he ended up by getting sucked into the swamp. Yeah, and Emilius or well, Coppola. Well, Coppola essentially, because he he wanted to make this small kind of intimate art house film. He ended up by making this big epic blockbuster film. I, I love The Godfather. I love this, mm. but I actually really like what he did with Peggy Sue Got Married. I know oh. it wasn't the final cut that he had, right? But particularly Tucker the Man in His Dream, mm. I think, is an incredible. How that did not become a big hit, I just do not know. It's interesting because after after that, after he started making all these little films, I mean, he he directed uh, Rumblefish. Hmm. Love it. The Outsiders, I prefer that. Yeah, I, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great one as well. He he almost doesn't care about the fact that there's not a massive audience, the fact that they're unseen, because he's just doing what he's always wanted to do. Yeah, but he he had to go through the process of making these you know, masterpieces, these big films to generate the money to get into a position where he could make it. Even when he did actually get the money from The Godfather and all these other films to kind of get to that financial position where he can go, right, okay, let's, you know, let's do something. He couldn't find anyone who wanted to um, help him make Apocalypse. So by Mm. default, he had to make it. And George obviously decided to uh, go off and, you know, make some little film called Star Wars. 
And, and American Graffiti. Yeah, yeah. His whole idea was to make it like a, a, a 60 millimeter, you know, documentary. We all kind of handheld. That would have been really interesting to have seen it, but Francis did something much, much more interesting and fascinating with it. I know we've been off the point before we go back onto this, but I am fascinated with this point that Lucas had made American Graffiti and made a great deal of money on that film. He then made Star Wars. If Star Wars had flopped, if films before that were THX 1138 and American Graffiti, I would have loved to have seen where Lucas could have gone from there. Mm. You know, I think we've lost. Yes, we had Star Wars and yes, we've got all of that. But I think another line had Star Wars been a flop, where Lucas could have gone would have been much, much more interesting. Yeah, it would have been fascinating to see what he would have done next, really. But I think what we caption you is that point in the 70s, we talked about Melius, talked about George Lucas, and obviously Francis Philip Coppola. The type of things they were making, it was out there. You know, it wasn't conforming to what studios want. No, studios no, didn't no. want Star Wars. No, no. Studios didn't want Apocalypse Now. No. And yet these things went on to be huge blockbusters. And, and it's an interesting parallel to what we were saying yeah. earlier about today, where everything has to be... We are in a time in 2019 where only three number one films in the American box office so far this year in over 30 weeks have been original. Everything else has been sequels, reboots, or prequels. It's just nonsense. But just to go back, even American Graffiti was a great film. It's a great film. Came out of nowhere. Came out of nowhere. I remember going to see it and thinking, I wonder what this is going to be like, and being just absolutely stunned at how good it was. But without what American Graffiti, you wouldn't have had Happy Days. You wouldn't have had yes. Grease. Yeah. yeah, all of these things yeah. came out of that yeah. film. Yeah, that so, groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. yeah, and and this, and let's bring this back now to Apocalypse Now, which is totally groundbreaking in its way. But I want to pick up one thing with you, Sam. You professed a complete respect for Walter Murch, and I'd like to ask why. I, I think it's justified, but I'd like to ask why. Oh, I was impressed and fascinated by the the montage sequence at the beginning. So I, I it, it was it was mainly just because I wanted to find out who the hell cut this film together. But it was the fact that Walter was not only involved in the editing, he was also involved in the the sound design, the mixing, loads of stuff. He was involved in most of all the post production stuff. And it was the ideas. It was the stuff that he was doing, you know, working with Dolby Labs where they were. Um, so it was, it was basically the first film that was 5.1, uh, as, as we understand it. So it was, well, it was kind of like the, the grandfather of 5.1, what they were trying to do at the time. So he worked on that sequence. When the film starts, it's black. And then occasionally you a blade, a helicopter blade, reverberate around the cinema in 5.1. That was him. Him and a few colleagues, they, they, they were tasked with just trying to do something at the beginning of the film. And I think what they were really trying to do was demonstrate the possibility of this. What can we do? Because the whole beginning of the film was just an accident anyway. The whole sequence of the tree line, uh, Francis talks about it in loads of different interviews where he said he went into the, the editing room and he, he picked up a piece of celluloid out of the bin put it through the movieola and he went, oh, okay, what's this? This is interesting. This is fascinating. And it was one of, I think, 27 different cameras set up to film the napalm drop. The happens with the sequence with Kilgore uh, and the helicopters. And it was just completely by accident. This became the opening. So it was, it was just a mad mixture of stuff. 
and I, I just loved his editing. And obviously when I saw uh, the conversation and the sound design and the editing for the opening of that, I was, I was just, I was so impressed. And I ended up by, I bought a copy of his book uh, in the blink of an eye. There's the second edition that's out now where he's, he's kind of put his thoughts down on paper about digital editing. And obviously he was the go-to person that they went to, obviously when they were, they were sort of dreaming up uh, the new kind of linear digital editing software. He was the grandfather of that. He helped them design it. Because it's mad to think this guy has straddled the, the sort of the original way that you edit it back in the day. And he's got his foot in the 21st century as well, helping to shape that. And it, it's just fascinating to read all of this projects and films and the way and all these different interesting things that he's done in his career. But it's just his philosophy about it that I thought was really fascinating, not only his work. When you start off and start out being an editor, it's really tricky. You can be shown what it looks like when it works. <laughs> you, you know, you know what good editing looks it's like, like yeah. but it's, it's really hard to go. Okay. Okay. Then. So how do I cut this? So this works, where's the rhythm, you know, and he talks about this in his book. And one of the most fascinating things that he talks about that I know I found when I went to film school was he said that the difference between celluloid and digital editing now is one is, you know, clay and one's marble. And he said, the problem is with digital editing is it's great. You've got so many more choices. You've got so much more, so many different things you can do with it. Uh, and then obviously he makes the, the counter argument saying, well, you know, celluloid, there's so much, uh, so many different things you can do with it, so much flex. And he talks about the pros and cons, but he said the worst trap of digital editing is the fact that you can just keep adding and you can keep adding and you can keep going and you can keep going. And, and sometimes you don't, no when to stop. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And you can just keep yeah. cutting. Whereas with celluloid, you make a cut, you, you physically do make a cut. You, you're committing in a sense. But with digital, you can undo it. So has this book helped you in your filmmaking? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it, it, it got me through film school. He theorises in his book and he says, you know, there's, there's like two or three ways that the film could be made. What your task is to look at it and to work out which are the best two. And you've just got to keep playing around with it until something clicks. The thing that was really fascinating was, and this is obviously where the, the title of the book comes from in the blink of an eye. He, he talks about knowing when to cut. And he said that something he noticed very early on was the fact that the reason that cuts in film feel natural is, is because it's something that you do anyway as a human being. You blink. And he said, what you've got to try and do as an editor is you've got to get to the point where your audience don't notice the cuts. It's the same with really good sound design, a really good photographer. If you notice the sound design, if you hear it all, you haven't done your job very well. <laughs> if mm. they don't notice it and you almost kind of miss it, then they've kind of done their job really well, haven't they? Same with the editor. Where you don't notice it because it's natural, the rhythm, you're, you're blinking. And it's kind of that, that thing where you're, you're looking at two people having a conversation. You look at them, blink, look, blink, 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 blink. And I started trying to replicate that whenever I was cutting, uh, let's say, a, a conversation together. And it's, it starts to make sense. And you start to be able to therefore judge when is a good point to cut. And you start kind of going, okay, I, I get it. Okay, right. So I blink every few seconds. So I should hold this shot for one, two, and, and you start to see it. It's, it's, it's strange and uncanny when it starts to happen, when it starts to click. I mean, it, it took me, it took me forever to, to get confident at it. 
As you're saying this, I'm thinking of the helicopter attack sequence in Apocalypse Now and the cats in that that are just fantastic, you know, holding the beat as they come in over the horizon, cutting to the village, cutting back out. Absolutely spot on. Now, we are unfortunately running out of time, and I've got two quick questions for you then. Marlon Brando, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not quick. That's a loaded question if I ever heard of one. I mean, when we saw the Q&A, Steven Soderbergh asked of Coppola, was Marlon Brando frustrating? Yeah, of course he was. He he was always going to be because he deliberately. I, I think I think a lot of the time because he was such a genius and he was so good at what he was doing. He used to play these games with directors. He'd try and instigate and create an atmosphere where things could happen. He deliberately try and make things as difficult as possible because he 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 felt that it would help. That he thought he was all part of the process. On other other occasions, he was probably just being a complete diva and you know being, yeah, yeah. being exceptionally and- difficult by taking a million dollars and then just not turning up. I think with Francis, it was kind of a, it was it was kind of a case of. He hadn't finished the film, the last part of the film, when Francis had turned up. So battling between the two of them, trying to figure out what the end of the film should be. They filmed loads of this stuff where he's improvising. And some of it is just incredible. You know, I think any writer, any, anyone, any poet would be jealous of the stuff that he was kind of coming out with. And Francis caught a few bits of it. They weave together something. And his, his performance is amazing. Because I, I read uh, Heart of Darkness, I kind of had a bit of an idea of what to expect. Um, I kind of knew that he'd get to the end of the river and he'd have this encounter. And they built it up so well. It's when they they come up the river and Martin Sheen's just sat on the end of the boat and the, there's hundreds of all these uh, canoes in front of them and they're all covered in white war paint. And it's just that one bass guitar. Doom, doom. Mm. as they come through and the tension's just built up up and up and up they got in this guitarist i think it was this Jimi hendrix impersonator and he plays this incredible guitar piece really simple underneath just as the boat's traveling up river and it's just fantastic and the tension and it just keeps building because you don't see him or you just see as you just see these heads everywhere these uh, decapitated bodies and you just think what on earth is going to happen when you finally encounter him, it's really, really unnerving because he's sat there and he's just talking to Willard about what part of America he's from while he's washing his head. And you just think, ah, oh, is he, is he <laughs> going to survive this? What the hell's going to happen? What's he going to do to him? Because every other guy they've sent up the river to go kill him has either been converted or has probably met some sort of grisly end. And you just think Martin Sheen's probably going to have the same fate. It sort of replicates what Marlowe was being told for when he's on that steamboat going up the river in Heart of Darkness. He's, he's being told all these rumours that he could have been a politician, he could have been a, a musician, he could have been anything. And he just builds up this tension, builds it, builds it, builds it. It just doesn't disappoint at all. I think the thing that struck me watching it again, and certainly that last part of the film, is when they arrive. This is ISIS. You know, this oh, is yeah. 40 years on. What Kurtz has created is essentially ISIS. That same horror, that same anything that doesn't agree with me, I will kill. This is the interesting thing about reading Heart of Darkness because it's it's interesting. What what John Melius, I think, was trying to do was he was completely infatuated and he completely he loved the book. And he, he talks about the summer where he first read it. He was completely captivated by it. 
And he knew then that he kind of, he always wanted to try and adapt this, turn it into something else. What happens to, to Kurtz in, in Heart of Darkness is the fact that he becomes infatuated and he, he falls in love with and he sort of gets sucked into this idea of being a god out competing his rivals for how much ivory he can get in and he just becomes a savage and he ends up by turning into the, the kind of godlike creature in the case of apocalypse now i suppose what's happening with brando's character is yeah he's he's formed a rebel army simply because he has such a level of awe respect for the viet cong and he talks about it because he goes if only i had 10 divisions of these soldiers, you know, our problems in this country would be Mm. quickly resolved. Mm. And I think he's kind of aware of the fact that he's become a monster. He's aware of the fact that he's gone too far. He's aware that someone's going to be sent up the river to come kill him. And he just happens that Willard's the man who's going to replace him. He knows that Willard's going to be the one that's going to try and kill him. And he has to accept it. He knows it's coming. He's no, he knows it's coming. Because in, in the book, Kurtz is actually dying when Marlowe gets there. He's on his deathbed. And it's, it's not... I mean, to me, it wasn't an anti-climax, but it, it, it's kind of like you've it's built up so much and he's just kind of a hollow shell of a human being. And he crawls out of, uh, you know, out of his hut, back down the dirt track to go back to, um, to the sound of the drumming and the, the fires that are lit in the distance. And obviously Marlowe picks him up and puts him on the boat and he dies on the way back and he says, the horror, the horror. The thing that obviously is contentious about the book is the fact that so many people claim it is racist and it's it depicts uh, the Africans as just being, you know, props and their caricatures. And, and yes, it, it does. But you have to factor in the time it was written in. Well, exactly. And it's interesting because they said Joseph Conrad wrote it because he was so horrified by the treatment of... The people in Congo by the uh, by the Belgians. I think it was the King of Belgium. They got rights to do whatever the hell they wanted, and they, okay. they treated them with such brutality that he he's almost kind of trying to say through Kurtz when he says the horror, the horror. Kurtz finally uh, acknowledged brutality and how what a, a terrible and violent, nasty, hideous kind of thing they'd um, inflicted on uh, on the people. The interesting thing about it with Marlon Brando's character is the fact that. The Vietnamese aren't aren't depicted in the same kind of cliched way, I think, is mm. in Heart of Darkness. They're, you don't see very many of them. Mainly uh, the village attack with Gilgal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of the level of respect and the the, the admiration that Kurt has for them. He, he becomes a convert. Okay. And he sort of realises how pointless the American uh, campaign is and he sort of just breaks away from it all. It's fascinating. Final question. Somebody who hasn't seen Apocalypse Now... What would you say to them? Uh, go see it. Go see it, because... Which one? The definitive version. If you're a real movie fan, and certainly from listening to what you said, I'm definitely going to go and watch it. I, I'd say if you're a real movie fan, go see the definitive version. Yeah, if, if you, the final cut. The yeah, final the final cut. cut. If, yeah. if you can't see it in the cinema and it's been and gone... It's coming out on Blu-ray in September. Yeah, it looks incredible. The soundtrack is unbelievable. The cinematography... The dialogue, the acting, everything in it is amazing. And it was such a trailblazer. If you do get the pleasure of seeing it in the cinema, or if you have a home cinema system, you'll get the pleasure of hearing it in 5.1 as well. 
hearing just the incredible mix and everything they've done with it. Sam, I spoke to you for hours on that. We haven't even scratched the surface. Yeah, we'll have no, to come no, back and go talk to us again. <laughs> we'll be back again on this. Thank you very much indeed for your time. It's all right. It's Thank, you. Thank you. Many thanks to the composer and musician Dean Jones, who provided us with the atmospheric title music and soundtrack for this podcast. We have included a link to his website in our show notes, where you can find more details on Dean and his music. To make sure you never miss an episode of At The Flicks, please subscribe to our podcast on our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear your feedback about our podcast and you can contact us on Twitter and by email. Our contact details are also on our website at theflicks.uk. Once again, thanks for listening.